thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight we are going to attempt something that I've never been successful at <clears throat> in all these years, doing two chapters at once. And I'll try and see if I can cover 39 and 40, because they kind of go together and it's an easier read than what we've been dealing with so far. So we are now in chapter 39 of the book of, of Genesis, 39. Last week we've taken a detour and we've looked at um, Judah. Remember, this is, we are now in the cycle of Joseph, and we knew that Joseph was taken to Egypt, sold as a slave by his cousins and brothers, family. And right in the middle of this, there is this interruption, and we go to Judah. And you wonder why, and we said last week, the reason why the story is said there is for two reasons. Judah and Joseph are the lines of kings. Judah is the line through which the Messiah will come. After the split of the kingdom of Solomon, of Israel, that David established, David establishes the kingdom of Israel. Following David establishes the kingdom, you have Solomon who reigns, and you know Solomon has the two faces. He's the face of Christ. He is a, a pointer to Jesus because he asked for wisdom, not riches, not money. He wanted wisdom, and he received it. But he's also a face of the Antichrist. When he had, you know, 220, 234 wives and 642 concubines and went after money and gold and all of that, right? After this, the kingdom split. The southern kingdom became known as the kingdom of Judah, including the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. And if Benjamin could actually leave, they would have left. The problem is Jerusalem was in the territory of Benjamin. And Judah was not about to let go of Jerusalem. Right? What comes around goes around. If you're following the news these days. And the remaining tribes, the ten remaining tribes, became known as the kingdom of Israel up north. That kingdom of Israel was also known as what? The kingdom of Joseph. The kingdom of Joseph. So out, the, the prophecy to Jacob is now becoming real. You have the kingdom, the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Joseph. Both kingdoms are going to, from whom kings are going to come forth. But the reason why the story of Judah was set right after Joseph is because in the story of Judah, he loses two, two sons. Two sons die. Why? Because he sold his brother. That's why it was set right after that. 
not before, right after. Judah was the one who said, let's sell him. And God said, all right, I'll show you how the covenant works, Judah. You sold your brother, let me show you what's going to happen in your family. Two of his brothers, and we, go, we one of whom is Onan, and we went through this whole discussion of Onanism and what it means and the sexual impact of that. And you could, if you're interested, you can find that on the Bible on the on the website eventually, corbono.com. Um, and now we're going to go back and revert to the story of Joseph, who is in Egypt. So, follow with me, chapter 39. Now Joseph was taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had the lord blessed the egyptian's house for joseph's sake the blessing of the lord was upon all that he had in house and field so he left all that he had in joseph's charge and having him he had no concern for anything but the food which he ate now joseph was handsome and good looking buckle up you understand scripture is not telling this so that they can, uh, you know, gloat over how Joseph looked, right? Oh, Joseph, the, the, the Israelite was really handsome and good looking. Those Egyptians didn't look as nice as he did. No, that's not the point, right? The point is, buckle up, right? Handsome and good looking. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Lo, having me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my hand. He is, no, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie with her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and fled and got out of the house. And when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to insult us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment with me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her, his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me uh, to insult me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment with me and fled out of the house. When his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So here we go. He was in the pit, and they, the, um, the Amalekites, who happened to be his distant cousins, because they go back to Abraham, kidnapped him and then sold him to the Ishmaelites, who are 
his second degree cousins, because remember Ishmael is the brother of Isaac, his grandfather, right? And the Ishmaelites sold him to the Egyptians. And he's in the house of his master, and we go again into this business of a garment. He's got issues with clothing. What got him in trouble the first time was what? The beautiful garment he had. It got him in a pit. This time the garment gets him where? In the jail. Right? You think God is trying to tell him something? Yeah? Okay. Now Joseph was taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian brought him, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had bought, uh, brought him down there. So the, 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 the nationality of Potiphar is repeated three times. Egyptian, Egyptian, Egyptian. Okay. The intent behind this is, again, remember that when this was written, it was written for the Jews who are where? Babylon. And in Babylon, they're living like what? Slaves. Hmm? Now, what will they remember when they see Egyptian, Egyptian, Egyptian? What will come to their mind? What happened to their, to their forefathers later on? They were also slaves in Egypt. Hmm? How does this story end? And God was with him. You see? Put yourself in the shoes of somebody who was in slavery reading this. So what is the intent of the author? What is he trying to communicate here? The covenant and God's steadfast love. Even when Joseph is in jail in Egypt, in a foreign land, God showed him steadfast love. What is the problem that the Jews, because those we're talking about are Jews, not Israelites, right? In Babylon, the kingdom of Judah, the, Jew, the, the, the Judeans were brought into Babylon as slaves. What have they lost in the process? The temple. Why is that important that they lost the temple? What was God's command to them when they built the temple? To worship and what? Offer sacrifice. The only place to worship and offer sacrifice is in the temple. You lose the temple, you lose the means that God put at your disposal to cleanse and purify your nation. So you are now continuously unclean. Talk about a major catastrophe. What else have they lost? They lost something else. Very important to them. Pardon? Yes, but also they lost the heritage, but they've lost the lines of kings. Many prophecies said, essentially, the one we're going to see at the end of the, of the book of Genesis, clearly states that the king will come to the line of Judah. But when Nebuchadnezzar came down into uh, Jerusalem the second time, he destroyed the temple, took the king, killed his children, plucked his eyes, and took him into s slavery. So as far as they can tell, the lines of kings has ended. No kings, no Messiah. No Messiah, no restitution. No, no restoration. Where is God? No temple, no sacrifice, 
and you're a slave. Yeah? And here is the holy writer who says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And later on, when they will move from Babylon to Persia, Cyrus, the king of Persia, will give them the authority to go back down and rebuild the second temple, the keeper of the prison. He gave them favor in the eyes of the keeper of the prison. Yeah? Read it this way, you'll understand the, the focus. The focus is God's love. Now, the temple was in Jerusalem, right? And when Jerusalem was raised and destroyed, the temple was also destroyed. And all the sacred vessels were taken to Babylon. And there's a number of stories in the book of Daniel around that. All right. Now, verse number two. This is an important verse for us. The Lord was with Joseph. I'm going to ask you this question. When you hear these words, the Lord was with Joseph, what do you think, how do you see Joseph? When you hear these words. Holy. Holy, Holy right? Yes? He lived in the presence of the Lord. He lived in the presence of the Lord. Yes? Faithful. Faithful, right? Blessed. Blessed. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Followed the covenant? Struggling. Apart from struggling, every other uh, characterization of Joseph is dead wrong. Wrong. Now, I completely understand why we would say that, because that would be the initial inclination. God is with him, therefore he's holy. Uh -uh. Now we need to understand something about how God works. First, let me show you this is not always the case. Can you think of somebody who... Um, can you think of someone who was in the presence of God and didn't end the way you would like to end? No, no let me, let me re rephrase my question. Think of someone who the Lord was with him but didn't end well. He didn't end well. Judas. Talk about the Lord is with you. Three years. Jesus was with him. He saw Jesus raise the dead. He saw, I mean, he, he, Jesus was with him. What did he do? Ah. What is the conclusion? Where is the false logical assumption we make? Notice. What did it say here? The Lord was with Joseph. Where does it say, and Joseph was with the Lord? Ah. Okay, but you might reply back and say, but wait a minute, the, the whole text says, and God blessed Potiphar and because of Joseph, and God showed Joseph steadfast love. On and on and on it goes. Right? What does that show? Well, it shows how God loves us. That's all. Let me put it to you this way. The fact that mommy changes Tommy's diapers does not imply that Tommy is clean on his own. 
it implies only one thing. Tommy needs a lot of help in staying clean. Yeah? Hmm. See, we immediately focus on Joseph. The real focus is on providence, the Holy Spirit. So, there are two kinds of graces God gives us. We have to be very cognizant of this and not confuse them. The first type of graces is that when we are successful. When we are successful, usually it's never for us. It's for others. It's a grace that God gives us. The whole story of the book of Genesis is all about that. So that we can help lead others to Him. Yeah? That's when we're successful. Usually, when we fail... The grace is for us. Okay, how do we know that? When did Jesus win over Satan? When he seemingly failed. It wasn't when he raised Lazarus. It was when he seemingly failed. That is the path to holiness. Jesus didn't tell us, if you want to follow me, right, go to the cemetery and raise a dead once a week. He didn't say that. If he wanted the way of holiness to be the way of sharing things with others, he would have told us, go to the cemetery once a week and raise somebody from the dead. Or feed the poor and the hungry, and that's what you... Ha- Why did he say, if you want to follow me, Pick up your cross and follow me. Yeah? So there are two kinds of graces. There are graces that we can call pastoral graces. They come to us so we can pass it on to others. We can do that all our lives and we can end in hell. I can do this Bible study. I can help people come to God. I can help people discover Jesus and become wonderful Catholics and saints and go to heaven. I can end up in hell. Then there are the sanctifying graces. Those are graces that God gives us for our sanctification, to make us holy. We want the first type of graces because it tastes sweet. Right? People come and thank us and tell us how wonderful this is, and we feel, whoa, we are in the seventh cloud. We don't want the second types of graces. Because it feels like somebody's pulling a teeth out of us without anesthesia. It hurts. You've got to look at yourself and see all your failings and commit to working on them. We don't want to do that. You see the, the distinction? If you notice when the church studies the, somebody, when they have, a, when they have the, um, the, 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 the case of canonization open for uh, a person, the church immediately sets aside all the exterior works. So let's say Mother Teresa. In the case of Mother Teresa, the church will completely ignore all the uh, monasteries and all the work Mother Teresa did. None of that was for her. What they're going to try and ascertain is her interior holiness. Because that tells us something about how she responded or corresponded to God's grace. Okay? That's why oftentimes holiness is completely hidden. It's not visible. 
God can give a televangelist the power to heal. He can truly receive the power of healing. It does not follow he's a saint. Conversely, there may be an old man, he's 80 years old, sitting in the church, muttering to himself, saying the rosary on his own. Nobody ever notices him. Right? His own family thinks of him, you know, just an old man. He never did anything amazing or noticeable by anybody. And he's a great saint in heaven. You want me to give you an example? Exhibit A. Over there. That statue over there. His name is Joseph. Saint Joseph does not speak one word in Scripture. There is not one word attributed to Saint Joseph in Scripture. He never speaks. He is completely silent. And after Our Lady, he is the greatest saint in heaven. So you might want tonight to reconsider your priorities and your life in light of this. God does not judge the way we judge. The fact that God was with Joseph does not imply that Joseph was a saint. As a matter of fact, we know he isn't. We just found out from last the, the pre, pre, prior study that he's a brat. He's tattletaling on his brothers. He has a beautiful thing, and he has absolutely no clue what he's doing to his brothers. And he goes and he tells them, hey, I got two dreams. I'm the boss. You're the guys working for me. No clue. No idea how, how his words are affecting them. Nothing. That's no saint. That's somebody who needs a lot of training. So guess what? God is going to give him the occasion to get trained in jail. Yes. Oh, no, he will know it's a sin because this is the fact that he replies to her the way he does is simply the, um, the um, stems from the natural law that is imprinted in our hearts. It, everybody knows in all cultures that you do not go and take the wives of somebody else or the husband of somebody else. You just don't do that. It's wrong. That's part of the natural law inscribed in our hearts, which is what we call conscience. So in his, he knows because we all know. How do children know if a, two, if a kid is playing with a toy, you're not supposed to go and grab it from them? It's, it's wrong. Correct. He actually spoke of his master. We're going to come to this verse. But he also realizes it's a sin before God, which, is, which it is. How does the, in, in, in the prior cases, how did when um, the uh, Pharaoh kidnapped Sarah? He completely knew when he found out that she was the, the wife of, uh, uh, of Abraham that was dead wrong. You just don't do that. Right? This is inscribed in every man's heart. You're supposed to know that. Yeah? It, it doesn't take God's revelation to know you're not supposed to take somebody else's wife. God inscribes that in our conscience when he forms us. It's part of what we call the, the natural law, which has nothing to do with the law of nature. It's the natural because it's part of our nature of who we are as, as men and women. You don't kill, you don't steal, you don't take somebody what, what belongs to someone else. These are laws which are universal to all of humanity. Now, we tend to disfigure them and do wonderful things to them, or not so wonderful things to them, but by and large, we know fundamentally this is what we're supposed to be. Yes, very good question. Yes, so think of it this way. Um, sin, right, is negative infinity. 
and then holiness is positive infinity. And then, if you will, a state of neutrality is zero. Right? The purpose of a Christian living isn't to be at zero. It's to be at positive infinity. Hence, it is not enough for us just not to do the bad things. That will not get us into heaven. We have to do the really good thing, which is to love God. It's the love of God that gets us in heaven. Right? So, that's the fundamental principle. In the case of Joseph, though, he does a virtuous act because he essentially refuses to give in to lust. And he tells her, I am not going to do this because, number one, I will be, I will be disrespecting my master. Right? And number two, I will be committing a sin before God. How can, you, how can I even do that? But we'll talk about that a little more. Yes, yes, yeah, no, we cannot do things just because they're barriers. As a matter of fact, if you think about Puritanism, that's exactly what they did. If you think about Islam, when they cover a woman from head to toe, that's exactly what they do. They put a whole bunch of rules to contain concupiscence or lust. Right, which is in a sense good because it limits the decomposition of society, but it's really not good because you're doing something out of force instead of out of love. Okay, so now that we know that, He's, God is with him, does not imply he's holy. In fact, the reason why the Lord is with him is to make him holy. And for us, we can take comfort because, well, if God was with him when he was not holy, then he's also with us when we're not holy. So let's take a case of somebody who, is, who's, who falls into habitual sin. So, as an example, gluttony. I talked a little bit to that last week. Gluttony is one of those sins that is, is hardly ever confessed, and it's commonly, commonly committed. So, you fall into gluttony when, while preparing the meal, you start to munch. Munching is a form of gluttony. Eating too quickly is a form of gluttony. Gluttony isn't just eating too much. Right? It is eating too much. It is eating too quickly. It is eating in, out of place. It is, for instance, eating constantly. Right? All those are forms of gluttony. Why? Because they indicate a disorder in the appetite. The purpose of that particular appetite is to feed the body in a, <clears throat> in a reasonable way for what? Why are we feeding our body? Sustenance, nutrition. But why do we do all these things? Huh? To keep us going where? Very good. Keep us going. Where are we going? Positive infinity. <laughs> Infinity and beyond, right? Yes. Yes and no. Yes and no. You have to be careful with this one because the problem with this is that what happens in the case of St. Rafa, who was sickly for 32 years, or many saints, St. Saint Maximilian Kolbe, for most of his life lived with a 40-degree fever. We, we have to be careful with... What, and I, I agree with you in that uh, grace builds on reason. So if there are impediments in our reason, let's say take somebody who had a really, uh, a really a terrible relationship with her mother. She's going to have a really hard time loving the church or Our Lady. Conversely, somebody who had a terrible relationship with his father is going to have a really hard time relating to God the Father. Grace builds on reason. So I completely understand with you. I, I'm with you on that. However, I'm not going to take it all the way through to say that you absolutely have to have healthy food in order to get to... Some, sometimes you can't, Right? But, but in our case, for us, mostly married or uh, people living in this kind of society, looking at food 
as means to sustain ourselves in the, in the most appropriate way, so we respect our body, I agree with you on that, is very important because it keeps us going and where we want to go. We want to go to prayer. The purpose of food is to help us pray. That's the purpose. And to help us help others. But if we eat food for the pleasure of eating food, we are disordered. Yeah? Because we don't care about what food is doing. All we care about is the momentary pleasure we're feeling. Hence, we're going to keep entertaining this, and it's going to keep a feed on itself, and eventually we eat food because we, we have what we call cravings. We have attachment to food. We can't run away from it. We, every time we feel emotionally stressed, we eat. Right? Emotional eating, all that stuff. Right. So, if you, if you have these things, if you have those issues with food, recognize that no dieting program is going to help you. Because the diet is just a mechanism, right? It's telling you, you don't do this and do that, the other. But if internally in your soul you have a disorder, it's going to trump everything. And add to this the fact that you have a bunch of demons who are there who are fanning the fire, right? We don't contend with, with, with the things of this world. We contend with principalities and dominions, the powers of hell, right? So therefore, you must be able to work on yourself to get rid of these tendencies, and in that case, prayer alone will not suffice. Prayer is good. You have to pray. Uh, healing masses will help, but you're not going to be able to cut it without serious, serious fasting. Fasting will do it. Right? You have issues with lust. You can't keep the custody of the eye. A woman walked by and she's scantily dressed and you just... Your eyes are now completely locked like a missile, Right? You have issues with pornography. You have issues with masturbation. With any form of sexual deviancy and disorder, fast. You're not going to be able to get rid of it otherwise. Right? Because fasting purifies your soul. And fasting puts to flight the demon. They hate it. And fasting attracts heaven like lightning to you. If you're fasting with love, in other words, you're saying, Lord, I am giving this up because I love you. That's how you do it. Not fasting in sort of a, you know, the, uh, uh, the uh, oriental way. You know, just to, you, you can gain control and mastery and become the master of destiny. Da, 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 da. That's going to get you to more trouble. Fasting as a way of love will get you out of there and will make you move in the right direction. Fasting is extremely powerful. And eventually you get hooked on fasting. You, you, you sort of see the sweetness of fasting because peace, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit come to your heart and replace these, these, uh, these disorders and help you move in the right direction. Somebody had a question? Yes. No, you don't fast from a thing. You fast. So what I mean by this, so when I'm talking about fasting, I don't mean, okay, I like chewing gum, right? So every half an hour I have new chewing gum in. Actually, when I was a kid, I wanted to know how long chewing gum would last. So I had a bazooka because they were the cheapest. And I kept it in my mouth. And every an hour, I'd go for a refill of sugar. You know, throw a couple of spoons of sugar in my mouth just to keep it going. I kept it in my mouth 24 hours, 7. I mean, just, I, I kept it. I would nev it never left my mouth. And I can tell you, a bazooka will last three days and, um, what was it now? Three days and seven hours, at which point it will completely decompose. Yeah, so 
Back to what I was saying. Suppose you're addicted to something. Chewing gum, ice cream, chocolate, whatever the case may be. When I say fasting, I'm not saying fast from this one thing. You know what happens? Your concupiscence will turn and lock on something else. It will find a substitute. And today there are so many substitutes. That's not going to do it. I mean by fasting, you establish a discipline of fasting. So here's one way to do it. Here's one way to do it. You... um, you don't eat or drink from midnight to noon. Every day, without fail, except for Sunday. You don't eat or drink until you go to Mass. Okay? And then after that, you're going to eat... Um, you're, going, you're going to eat um, less than what you usually eat. So you just don't compensate. So, okay, now I'm at noon. Now my day starts. So I'm going to have my big breakfast, and then at 4, I'm going to have my big lunch, and at 10 o'clock, I'm going to have my big dinner. And at 1 o'clock, I'll have my snack. Well, you can't do it at 1 o'clock, but you know, you see what I'm saying? can't do that. Yeah. So, rule of thumb. So, and, and then you cut, you cut a whole bunch of stuff. So you're going to take all the sweets, no sweets, none, zero. No jam, no chocolate, no, um, no, no muffins, no, right? No sweets. No sweets, no sweets, right? No meat. Take all the meat out. And uh, cut down on the salt if you like salt. Make it bland. In other words, you're eating not to enjoy the food. And you turn this around and say, Lord, I'm doing this because I love you. So you fast, but you have to pray. You fast, you pray. Lord, I'm doing this because I love you. And then the other thing, you eat slowly. You try to remember to eat slowly. Slow down. Slow down. One way to do it, take a bite, one Hail Mary. Bite, one Hail Mary. Because I try to slow down by slowing down my bite. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I got turbocharged mouth and just... So, bite, one Hail Mary. Bite, one Hail Mary. It forces you to slow down. Now you're serious. Now you're saying to God, I'm serious. I'm serious about you. I'm committed to you. You stick to it. And usually within... Eight weeks, you start to see very significant results in your life. Anger goes down. Impatience goes down. Lust goes down. Your attitude towards food will, will, will improve. You'll still have a lot of crisis. There'll be times where you just don't know what you're doing. You'll, you'll, you'll kind of wake up after you've stuffed yourself with three pies and two bowls of ice cream. And you wonder, well, what am I doing here? The body reacts. It's, it's, it's going to be a, a fight. But if you keep at it, you keep committed to your prayers and offering it out of love to Jesus as a sacrifice, right? Then slowly, your concupiscence completely go down. Yes. Yeah, you're not supposed to fast on Sunday because of what Jesus told us. As long as the, the friends of the groom have the groom with them, they will not fast. But when the groom is taken away from them, then they will fast. So Sunday is not a day of fasting. It does not mean that you have to eat three muffins. Right? It just means you don't fast. You just eat normally, and you enjoy what you're eating, and you give glory to God. Yes, absolutely. You, because remember, you're, fasting alone will not do it. I'm going to insist on that. This is not oriental training and discipline. They're very good at it. Right? But that's not the point. The point with doing it to say to Jesus, here's that muffin, give me your love. It's the love of God, because look, if you dig a hole in your heart, and you go around with an empty heart, 
you kind of need to fill it with something. The point is that you don't want your heart to be empty. You want it to be full. But the good things, which is the love of God. So you're digging the hole in your heart to say, I don't want all that stuff. I'm taking it out. God, come into me. Fill my void. And the peace of God will be with you. That's how it works. Right? So there's no magic formula. It's not the fasting alone that will do it. It's fasting for the kingdom of God. Yeah? That's what will help tremendously in improving. That's why the saints fasted so much. They loved fasting. You know, and and check, check this out. There was a woman in, in, in Germany who died now. She's, she, she lived in the 20th century. She lived for uh, I don't know how many years on the Eucharist only. What's, his, what's her name? Teresa Neumann. Teresa Neumann, yeah. On the Eucharist only. I think she was obese. Yeah, yeah she was obese. She was not thin. Eucharist only. And it was verified, doctors and everything. Just the Eucharist every day. That's God telling us something about how He wants to feed us. It's not, it doesn't mean we have to do this, but it's God telling us, that's what I want to do for you. I'm on, I want to feed you. I want to give you the good things. But when I come to, to you and you're full with this other stuff, there's no spot for me left. Right? So, fasting. You have issues with impatience, anxiety, anger, uh, um, uh, compulsive behavior, disorder in food, in eating, in lust. Fast and pray. Fast, Because Jesus said, there are certain devils that cannot be pushed away other than by fasting and prayer. And everything that has to do with the concupiscence of the body usually fall under those categories. Yes. When you have a health reason, very good. Uh, thank you for bringing this up. What you must do then is find different forms. Right? So, give up sweets completely. Right? That's not going to affect the pregnancy or the breastfeeding. Right? Um, the other way you can, uh, women can fast, and these are more uh, abstract things that are a little harder to manage, but um, the custody of the tongue. Custody of the tongue. Right? The, the, the chattiness, the reading stuff just for the purpose of reading, curiosity, all that, right? That could be other ways to do it. And almsgiving. Almsgiving is a wonderful way also to do it, right? But generally speaking, if you can't fast, I definitely recommend it for you. It's, there's nothing better than that, fasting and prayer. Those two together, very powerful. All right. Uh, that kind of throws away my intention of doing two chapters. I'm wondering if I'm going to be able to do one. All right, so Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph because the Lord is going to protect him. Now, he was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his master Egyptian. So, the Egyptian was successful because Joseph was in his house. Huh? Joseph was not successful. I mean, at the end of the day, he's still a slave. He has not a penny to his name. His master was successful because of Joseph. And that is how we Catholics ought to be in society. Society needs to grow in holiness because of you. God will not destroy a city because of you. God will bring work and will keep the economy sustained because of you. Do you understand that? When he went down to see Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham got into this sort of you know, Mediterranean haggling with him, well, what about the others ten? And then, you know, what about five? And God always gave in. I mean, he was a really poor haggler. He never answered back, no, seven and a half, I'll stop here. And I'm just, 
kept on going with, the, with whatever he asked. He just gave it to him. If there were five righteous men in Sodom and Gomorrah put together, he would not have destroyed the cities. Five. There were not five. In fact, Lot had to leave. Right? So that's important for us to realize the role that we play in society, the role that we must play in society. And the master saw that the Lord was with him. These two verses, verse 2 and 3, summarizes all of Genesis and in a sense summarizes the entire Bible. The Lord was with Joseph. That made Joseph successful, which made his master successful. Translated into spiritual life, the Lord is with us so that we may bring others to God. And in return, others see that God is with us. That's why God was also with Joseph, for the sake of the Egyptians. This is the role of the firstborn, to bring his brothers to God. That's the role we're all supposed to play. So, right now my daughters are going to this class. It's um, classical um, uh, studies, they're studying Herodotus and uh, Sophocles and all the Egyptians and discovering how wonderfully, um, how wonderfully um, uh, dysfunctional they were. Uh, not the Egyptians, the Greeks, right? And in the middle of all of this, the teacher wanted to talk about purgatory because it comes up in Plato. So when that subject of purgatory came up, um, my girls gently bombarded him with Catholic material. And I'm talking about especially my 14-year-old, who's 14-year-old, and she is bombarding him with Catholic material. So she gave him the first notes. He said, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, I'll look into it. She didn't give up. She came back with more. Right? And now she's handing him over a CD that talks about the origin of Scripture. His reaction was, you're the first Catholics I meet that actually know something about the Bible. He went to Mass once. He went to Mass. He observed Mass. And he said, yeah, I saw them at church. But then the way they behave, I thought it was completely hypocritical. They say this is the body of God and believe in it, but the way they behaved at Mass was completely hypocritical. And the conversion of every, every notable um, convert who wrote about his conversion, there was always a Catholic family. They didn't try to catechize him or, or do any apologetic with it. They just lived a Catholic life. But it impressed them so strongly. Is your family like that? If I go into your house, do I know it's a Catholic home? Or do I know it's a home that is worshipping at the altar of the God TV? Is, is when I enter your home, is the first thing I see is the TV and it's on? And there's a bunch of guys who are having a frenzy over one ball? on some sort of a terrain. I mean, I would basically go buy each one of those guys a ball and then everybody will have peace. It would be the end of it, right? Oh, you're fighting over one football. I mean, come on. That's really cruel. Um, my point to you is that what kind of home do you have? Is there, is there a holy water fount somewhere? Holy water will work as long as you have it. When people come to you, do they know this is a Catholic home? Are you praying with your kids? Especially men. Are you praying with your kids? Are you inviting them to prayer? 
Do you read so you can answer their questions? When they have questions about life in general, do you tell them about God's, God's plan for them? Do you tell your boys and girls, well, did you consider that you might be called to become a nun or a priest? How are you Catholic? In my house, we have neighbors who are non-Catholic, two girls. And my girls now know to tell these girls that when they step into my house, they better be modestly dressed. Nothing tight. Nothing uncovered. I have a pool. If you come to my house and you have a two-piece swimsuit, you're sent back. No exception. I don't care who it is. Do you enforce laws of modesty at your house, on your girls? Or do you allow them to wear whatever they want? And you call yourself Catholic. You're not. You're hypocritical. This is how faith is transmitted, by being truthful to it. And people will not believe you if they go to your house and see your girls are dressed like everybody else's girls. What's the difference? Right? They're on the sex market like all the other girls. Because that's what it is. That's what it amounts to. And you're allowing it. And you say to yourself, you're Catholic and you receive communal. Why should I believe you? It is really epitomized in this little story I've been told where I think the bishop here, the Chaldean bishop, was driven to, maybe not the Chaldean bishop here, a bishop. I think he's Chaldean. I'm not sure. I got some Zimer, so bear with me. But he was taken to the church by a taxi driver who was Muslim. And they got into this theological discussion over the presence of God, etc. And the bishop explained to this driver the Eucharist and what happens inside the church. And he drove him, stopped by the church, and the doors of the church were open. You can see all the way through, all the way to the tabernacle. And the driver said, you mean to tell me in that box over there, God is there? Yep, that's true. He said, I don't believe it. So why? He said, because if I believed it, I would lick the ground from the, from the sidewalk all the way to the inside of the church. Is your behavior inspiring to others? Now, God is with you. God is with you. The only question is, does he need to put you in jail for you to wake up? Or are there more gentle ways for him to show you his way? That's really the question. Does he have to send you cancer to realize that he exists? Does he have to take your kids away from the faith for you to realize how important it is? Does he have to do these things to wake you up? Or are you going to get serious about your faith and do what it takes to show him that you love him? That's the question. This is what Joseph... This is the whole story about Joseph. Notice. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Ah. Right now, right there, there's a flag. Right? He put him in charge of all that he had. That verse should have added, except his household. You don't put anybody in charge of your household. Never. So you wonder about that Potiphar, the Egyptian. You wonder about his relationship to his wife. If you love your wife, you don't put no guy in charge of her. Translation. The man is rich, right? He's got lots and lots of land. Because actually the jail is on his land. Here's this young man here who is very talented. Joseph, come over here. I'm going to build you an office. 
700 yards away from my house. You can work there. It'd be really comfortable. Instead, he lets that young man work in his home when he is not home. Remember Adam? Till and guard? Where was Adam when the devil was talking to Eve? Yeah. You see right there the problem. Now, let's turn the, the table around. Here's Joseph. Things are going really well for him now. He has a really comfortable life. He's working in the house of his boss. The wife of his boss is after him. And notice the spiritual degradation. She's not saying to him, Joseph, you are my prince charming. You're the one I really waited for. I was forced to marry Potiphar. I don't love him. I love you. There is no romanticism here. You notice that? What does she say to him? Lie with me. It is the complete disfigurement of the purpose of sex. It is a complete counterfeit of what sexuality is all about. Sex is beautiful. Sex is holy. Sex sanctifies the man and the woman. The act of sex makes them holy when they're married. Did you know that? That's Catholic teaching. Don't let anybody tell you that the church thinks that sex is, is, uh, is, uh, is um, uh, dirty. The church has reverence for sexuality. It's a wonderful gift. It has a great purpose in the, in the, in the, in the, in the life of God. So if you know women who do not want to be with their husband because they consider sex is dirty, please talk to them very forcefully and tell them to change their ways. They're hurting their marriage. And they're hurting their husband and themselves when they do that. Sex is holy. Now she took it to the lowest possible level. A level that we are very, very, very familiar with. Almost all movies, guy loves girl, girl loves guy. What do they do? They go sleep together. Let me show you how I love you. Treat you like an object. See? You're not a person to me. You're just an object. I'm going to satisfy my desire and we're done. But I really love you. Good luck with that. Huh? So that's what she brought it down to. So you can know that there is a moral moral decomposition going on here, and it's obvious to anybody who, can, who understand marital relationship that Mr. Potiphar here has not been really taking good care of his wife. She's not the apple of his eye. She's not the queen of his heart. He hasn't showed her the attention that a husband must show his wife. He hasn't treated her as a queen. He hasn't taken care of her. He doesn't see her as a gift of God to him, and he's not treating her as such. I'll tell you right now, guys, when you don't treat your wife like this, you can bet you can have trouble. Simple as that. A, a woman is made to be treated like Jesus treated the church. No different. You die for her. That's how you're supposed to do it for your wife. And it's not a question whether she deserves it or not. And it's not a question whether she treats you right or wrong. It's the question of your duty. This is just your duty. This is not even... Going above you, this is just doing your duty. As a husband, you're supposed to do that. You want to know if you're doing a good job? Really easy. Tonight, go home, have a conversation with your wife, and simply ask her, Honey, if I were to die tonight, and you were to bury me, 
Would you write on my tomb, I had nothing to complain about? If the answer is no, if, you, if the answer is no, you can bet that the devil will be right there with you, your personal judgment, doing all the complaining for her. Yeah. Take that seriously. That's part of your duty as a husband. Now, don't get me wrong. If your wife is asking for something completely extravagant outside the domain of the faith and good living, she wants a huge house simply because she wants a huge house, yeah, your duty is to say no. Obviously, you're the one, you're the head of the family, you have to give the right direction. Right? But if she tells you, honey, when, when we have people around, you know, when you invite people to dinner, you talk too much. Don't spend the next half hour explaining to her why you talk too much, actually, why you don't talk too much, by talking continuously and never letting her to give her a chance to even say two words edgewise. Just don't do that. Okay. How? What can I change? Here's another way to do it. Go home tonight and ask your wife, and in return, your wife should ask you, if there were three things you want me to change, what would they be? What are the three top things you would like me to change? If you don't have a, a, a wife, if you're still living at home, ask your parents. Go to your parents and say, if there are three things you want me to change, what would those be? Then you show yourself to be truly, truly a follower of Christ. Christ is so important to you that you're willing to go through this painful process of sanctification. If you're a mother, ask your children, what am I doing that you would rather see me change? You'd be surprised by the answers you're going to get from your kids. In that, you show humility, you show love, you show honesty. And you will teach your children a lesson they will never forget when you ask this question. If you want to play the king of the hill or the queen of the hill, I'm perfect, I'm up here, and I'm up here, and you're down there, and that's how it's going to be, and don't ask any questions, good luck to you. What did Jesus say? Those who are up will be brought low. Those who are low will be brought up. Make your pick. Hmm? So, she comes to him, lay with me. His answer, having, lo, having me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my hand. He is not greater in this house than I am. Hold on. He is not greater in this house than I am. Is that a show of humility? Okay. You, you see Joseph's problem still. Vanity is still his problem. He's not learned his lesson yet. Nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself. <laughs> That's a problem. Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You've got to wonder, if she was his daughter, what would have Joseph done? It is not clear from the text that Joseph would have said, because you're his daughter. There is work here at all levels of the personal holiness. God is really focused on making Joseph a saint. This, the cycle of Joseph is about sanctity, interior sanctity. And by the way, Joseph is my favorite patriarch of all of them. It is Joseph. I have a lot of veneration for what he's going to do. He's amazing. So I'm not putting him down. I'm just reflecting on what he's going through and where God is taking him from and what he's going to do with him. But you notice right now, this is not a holy man speaking like this by any stretch of the imagination. This is a man who needs a lot of work. Yeah, the, the movies are interesting. Most of them are 
unrealistic, but they're at least good to give people an idea about what his life is. Yes. Um, how can I do this great wickedness? And notice, he calls it for what it is. It's a great wickedness. So, guys, let me tell you. You sleep with a girl today outside of marriage. It's a great wickedness. There is no other call for it. There's no other name for it. And no matter how the world wants to package it for you and make it really bright and glistening, it's a great wickedness. And here's what's going to happen after you slept with this girl or you girls, you slept with this guy, you're going to end up even more lonely than before. Because sex outside of marriage uh, creates a sense of loneliness once the act is complete. Why? Because you've been treated like an object. And anytime you're treated like an object, you are going to be so lonely. And to be able to free yourself from this loneliness, you're going to do it again. And again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and you're going to be more and more lonely. Studies will show you over and over again, happy, uh, married people are far happier than those who have a relationship outside of marriage. Far happier. Why? Because within the confines of marriage, trust is built. You're not treated as an object. You really are with somebody who treats you with love, and your soul is nourished. Whereas outside of marriage, your soul is screaming. It's thirsty and hungry, and all you're getting is the feeling. And the feeling is not going to feed you. It's a cruelty. Sex outside of marriage is absolute sheer cruelty to those who go through it. I feel so sorry for them. It's a complete trap. It's really taking what is good and holy and giving you the, the, um, the counterfeit. A piece that is not going to... There's nothing in it. There's nothing for you in it other than the sensation. And after the sensation fades away and dies, you're left with yourself and your soul is even hungrier. It is wickedness. God is not trying to take away something good from you. God is trying to give you what is good. All right. And, and okay, now, now notice verse 10. Now, that's the verse that gets me. Had, he, had she done it once and grabbed him and he ran away, all right, fine. Right? But that's not the case. And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, Okay, Joseph, you know you are in trouble. Why do you stay in the house? Why don't you go build yourself a little shack out there and work in it? Ah, ah. What do we call this? We call this near occasion of sin. There are those who are together and they ask this question, well, how far is too far? Well, when you ask this question, it's already too far. Your, your mindset is wrong, right? Your mindset is too wrong. Is wrong. You, you, you didn't get it. How far is too far? What do you mean, how far is it? You, you, already, you, you have a wrong mindset. You've already seen this other person as an object, and you're just trying to wonder, how can I do it and, and get away with it? It's devious. It's a devious scheme. It's a wrong scheme. You have issues with broccoli, you avoid the broccoli stand at Vaughn's. If you have issues with broccoli, 
if let's say you're addicted to broccoli, and every time you see broccoli, you push everybody away, and you jump into the stand and sit in it and eat all the broccoli, you don't go near the broccoli stand. If you do, if you say to yourself, I'm just going to look. That's called putting yourself in a near, a situation of near occasion of sin. And as a result, you've just committed a sin. Because you're tempting God. You have to have custody of the eyes if you have issues with those things. What does that mean? You look at a movie, it's rated R. Okay, why is that rated R for? It says nudity, sexuality. You must feel right there and then that you're holding in your hand a coal from hell. Because that's what this movie is. And don't give me excuses of aesthetics and arts and whatever. You, you want to call That's not. It's lust, and that's all there is to it. You put the movie back in place, and you glorify God. And you don't watch it. That's what you do if you're really serious about your faith. No if, no but, no nothing. And if you are tempted by this, fast some more. All right, so he doesn't do that. He's enjoying the attention, and it comes to a head. She grabs him. Notice, she grabs onto him. She grabs onto him, right? Um, we, as, as uh, human beings, since original sin, do not have the strength on our own to resist our, our uh, passions, when passion overtake us, they'll take us all the way, as far as possible. So today when you have these men who commit these atrocious acts with girls, you can at least understand where this is coming from. When you are hooked to lust, lust will bend you backward and turn you into an anti-creation, which is what the devil wants. It'll make you more like animal than your men. Okay? So, don't be surprised or shocked when men fall in such a sin. And expect more of it, not less. As the society goes, as women continue to dress the way they do to entice men, as men continue to fall into this enticement, and exacerbated in their own senses, as movies go this way, and the media and the TV, as portrayal of a good life means you're dressed in immodest ways, and behave immodestly, and think that you are free, and you're allowed to do it as if you're in need and everything is okay, expect more of it, not less. Today, the fight is on defining marriage between a man and a woman. In a generation from now, for your kids, it's going to be the finding marriage between human beings. Don't take it from me, take it from the book of Exodus. There'll be people that will want to adopt their dogs. It's already happening. Many people think of dogs as kids. They speak of, we've adopted dogs. And they treat their dogs the way you would treat human beings. We have two big dogs. We wanted to go on vacation. My wife looked around, saw this place. Guess what? It's called a dog hotel. Dogs have TVs. 
They have kennel service. It costs a fortune. It's sinful. But understand that the human psyche will completely fall prey to emotion, to our passions, because we are weak. We've been weakened by original sin. We cannot resist it on our own. On your, on your own, you can do nothing. Jesus was not kidding when he said that. Well, he never was kidding. But my point is that he's not exaggerating. You need the life of grace to make you act humanly and then to make you act saintly. So he sticks around, and then you know what happens, right? So now the initial lust breeds what? Lies. So one sin always breeds another. So those who live in sexual relationship outside of marriage, not only are they committing one sin, they're committing a multitude of sins. Because one sin leads to another. Sin multiplies in the soul, and it festers, and it's full of pus, and they try to cover it with different entertainment and excitement and noise and music and to keep to feel that they're alive, but the reality they're not. They're dead. They're zombies. So she, what does she do? Echoes of Genesis. Hear the words. See, he has brought among us a Hebrew. Remember Adam? The woman you gave me. She did this. So I'm, I'm innocent. I'm not doing anything. He brought this Hebrew. What is she trying to do? Kindle their, their nationalistic sense. What is the implied intent here? Why did she bring in the men only, not the women? Why is she talking to the men only and not the women? Because the women will call a spade a spade. They'll see through the bluff. The men don't. Look, guys, he brought that Hebrew. And he did this. Meaning what? You're not smart enough to do it yourself. The, the, the implication here, the deviancy, the, the depth of cunning and malice in what she says is amazing. The tongue. But then, you know, poor, poor, um, poor innocent me, I lifted up my voice and cried. He left his garment with me and fled out of the house. Now, when... His master came, notice, verse 19, his anger was kindled. But scripture does not say kindled for what cause. It doesn't say why he was angry, just as he was angry. And so from that, the rabbis inferred, and the fathers of the church as well, that he was angry at her, as well as he was angry with him, not just with him. Why? He didn't kill him. If he had surety that Joseph did what he did, he would have killed him. But instead, he threw him in jail. Which he has the authority to do. In Egyptian, um, amongst the Hittites and the um, uh, Sumerians, there were no jail. Those guys didn't bother with such things. Right? They want to get rid of somebody, they got rid of him, and that was the end of it. The Egyptians have jails. And there are documents that attest to the jailkeeper and all these things you read here. Completely attested in Egyptian, uh, in Egyptian society. All right, now here's Joseph back in the pit. He started in a pit, he's back in a pit. Right? And the wonderful thing about the wonderful thing about him, he's not complaining. He doesn't raise his voice against God. He doesn't say, God, how could you do this to me? None of that. Right? And 
The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So God said, I gave you this big job at the house and you messed it up completely. That's okay, I'll give you a smaller job. And I'll keep you in jail to keep you out of trouble. Until you learn my ways. That's how we treat, he, this is how he treats us. The same way. No different. And it's important for us to realize that, that when something happens to us, it's God's way of taking care of us. There is no coincidence. There's no luck. There's no chance. It's all God talking to us. God doing things for us. God helping us. Giving us what we really need. And we need to listen, just like Joseph did. Uh, we know that he must have been... We were not completely sure because we don't, we don't know uh, how long he stayed in jail. We know that he, when he came out of jail, he was in his 30s. But we're not sure if he stayed there two years or seven years. We really don't know. It's hard to say. Oh, we don't know. That's the thing. When did he get to learn about God? When he was with his father's house. Obviously, he was, in, he was at least 17 years old. We know that. But we really don't know exactly how old he was when he was thrown in jail and how long he stayed there. Yeah. We, we don't know if he spent only two years doing what he was doing or seven years. We, there's no indication of time. All right. So we'll take questions. Yes. Would he be angry with himself? I, he was angry. We know that. And if he was truthful with himself, he should have been angry first and foremost with him. With him. And we think this is the case because he didn't kill Joseph. So yes, it was an awakening call for him, and it's, we don't follow the story any further than that. We don't know what happened to them. Right? Did they go see a marriage counselor? They should have. Right? The Egyptian equivalent of it, at least. Right? A wise man or wise woman or whatever. Right? They should have done something about their marriage, which they didn't. And to us, we need to always question this. What am I doing within my marriage? I'll tell you right now, I read this book called... Um, um, what is it again? Proof, safe proofing, something like that. Safe proofing your marriage against an affair. So the title is very provocative, but it's written by a counselor who's been a marriage counselor for 25 years. And in the introduction, he says, I've seen people come to me from all walks of faith. It doesn't matter. They can be Catholic, they can be Protestant, Muslim, you know, it doesn't matter. And many of them have had issues of affairs within their marriage. And it boils down to some basic things that must be done within a marriage. So one thing that I'll, leave you, that I'll, I'll let you think about very provocative is this. He says, if you're not spending, if you're not spending as husband and wife seven hours weekly together, movies don't count. Seven hours together, your marriage is in danger. Pardon? Not counting sleeping. No. <laughs> he means in direct conversation, in sharing, in talking about what happened in continuing to deepen this relationship. If men, you spend more time with your buddies, your marriage is definitely in trouble. Women, if you spend more time with your girlfriends, your marriage is definitely in trouble. The two of you are to become one flesh, not your buddies watching rugby. Well, no, nobody watches rugby or football, whatever the case may be. And not your friends, girlfriends. You're not to become one flesh with them. So marriage requires real commitment for marriage to work as it's supposed to work. And obviously, Potiphar left it up to Joseph to take care of his household. What are the consequences that we saw? Yeah. Yes. Okay, very good question. Is dessert considered gluttony? 
dessert in and of itself is not considered gluttony. The fact that you're eating dessert when you're full is an act of gluttony. Yes, indeed. So therefore, if you wish to eat dessert, you need to plan ahead and make sure you're not full when you're eating dessert, which then brings the question of the nutritious value of what you're eating. And that's a completely different issue. But on its own, no. Let, let's make it more, more, more practical. Suppose you pick up a bar of chocolate, right? So uh, a bar of chocolate, let's say it's 170 calories, right? Small bar of chocolate. And it's 4 o'clock, and you're enjoying this with company with a, a nice tea or coffee. Is that an act of gluttony? Certainly not. Yeah? If you take the one-pound Belgian chocolate and you have at it, that's a completely different story. Yes? Yes. All right. Very good question. When you go to people who torment you with food, which is not an act of charity at all, it's act, an act of cruelty. Now, they mean well. Don't get me wrong. Right? They're not behind the scene, right, uh, raising incantation for the destruction of your health, even though they are actually participating in it. You have two choices. You're going to offend somebody. The question is, who do you want to offend? Your Lord or them? If you rather offend God than offending them, guess who is your God? The one heaping up the food. That's your God. You with me? Never be afraid to be extremely firm to the point of severity with people who insist on serving you more than what is reasonable. And if they don't want to listen to you, they are not your friends. Go and visit with them after me. You, if you tell your grandmother straight out, what you're doing right now is sinful. Stop. It will put a stop to this. She may not like you <laughs> for a long time, but that's okay. So sometimes you may not have any choice than to go at it with a two-by-four. Other times you can... Okay, they served you a heap of food on your plate, you eat your portion, and you leave the rest. And if they ask you, well, you didn't like our food, because that's the usual way they torture you with, you say, no, your food was absolutely delicious, and I ate slowly to enjoy every bite. Thank you. That's one way to answer, right? And you stick to it. You have to train people into behaving in a moral way, especially... With, with all this disorder around food. Now, I understand where they're coming from. Many of them come from poor countries, and it's the way of showing liberality. But they completely go overboard, right? So, yeah, very good question. Yes. I don't think there's any... All I'm saying is that there is no relationship. Wonderful things can happen to you, and you may be holy. And wonderful things can happen to you, you may not be holy. Conversely, not so wonderful things can happen to you, and you may not be holy. And not so wonderful things can happen to you, and you may be holy. There is no direct correlation. What was the question? The question was, um, if wonderful things happen to you, does this mean you're not holy? Is this, am I asking a question right? Yeah. And I'm saying there is no direct correlation between the two. It can go either way. Right? But you certainly don't judge holiness by the wonderful things that happen. That would be a mistake. That's vanity. Because right? holiness is not about Santa Claus giving you gifts. God is not Santa Claus, right? Holiness is about interior love. And the best story I have for you, I've told you this numerous times, I can't, you know, I can't tire from telling it, is the story of St. Teresa of Avila, right? 
in Spain, middle of the summer, you know, 110 degrees, 90% humidity, um, humidity, humidity, <laughs> that's what I have on mind thinking of her, humidity, right? And she's dressed as a Carmelite nun. If you've seen a Carmelite nun dressed, covered all the way from, right? And she's sick. It's about noon, and the wheel of the carriage breaks. There's three nuns trying to fix it, and she's sick. So she lifts her, her gaze up to heaven and says, Lord, why do you treat us this way? And Jesus answers and says, that's how I treat my friends. And St. Teresa answered back, then don't be surprised if you have so few of them. Most saints did not have wonderful things happen to them in their lives. <coughs> Pick up the cross and follow me. Yeah, yes. So love is not an equation. Faith is not an equation. It's always a mystery. There is something to contemplate. Just as when you look into a child, you don't see an equation. You see a mystery. You contemplate a child, and it's a wonderful thing. Right? So likewise with God. Now, what God asks of us when he says, pick up your cross, what he asks of us is to become perfect. Saint, uh, the Gospel of St. Luke. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, Matthew, I'm sorry. Luke, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. So perfection is equated with mercy. Right? Hence, somebody who just follows the rules has confused things. So, there are many who confuses pietism with piety. What is piety? Piety is the duty owed to God. It's to give God His due. What does that mean? Worship. It has to be true worship from the heart. That is, you give God His love. If you can't give God His love, and I don't mean by that you feel love. It's not feelings. It's your action. Lord, there's a piece of paper on the floor. I have nothing to do with it. I'm picking this piece of paper because I love you. Versus, oh, this floor is completely dirty. This place is completely dirty. I'm just going to clean it up so it can be clean. That's pietism. Right? So it's entirely possible for somebody to come to church every day every day to church, receive communion every day, be on their knees all day long, three, say, ros say three rosaries, and go to hell. Because they have gone through the outward mechanism without ever internalizing life. What do I mean by this? I can be completely faithful to my wife. I can do all my duties to her to the T and never show her love. Yeah? You see the difference? Outwardly, it's really hard to tell which is which. Because the greatest saints obey the law perfectly. The greatest saints go to Mass and say the Rosary and do all these other things. You can't tell outwardly. It's within the soul. And God can tell. right? But from us, what is motivating us to do things? Is it the love of God? And that's what we should be praying for. God, I would rather have one, one... Um, drop of mercy than all the wisdom and all the intelligence and all the riches of the world. One drop of mercy in my heart is more valuable to me than all these things put together because all these things put together are going to go away. They're only things. One drop of mercy in my heart is the love that I can bear you. That's what we're talking about. Yeah? We come to church. We say our prayers. We do all these things because we want to love God. Likewise, if you're going to receive somebody in your house, what do you do? You clean house, right? 
out of honor and respect for the person. Well, if you want Jesus to come in your soul, you better clean your soul. Hence, you go to confession. You go at a reasonable pace. And I would say once every two weeks would be a really good, reasonable pace. Most of us shower every day. How would you like it if your husband or your father, your kid showers once every six months? But that's what we do to our souls. We don't go to confession. We don't shower our souls. We spiritually stink. And then we come to confession, to commune, receive Jesus, and Jesus come in my heart and I love you. You see my point? Okay. So you go to confession not because you're afraid, just because you're afraid, but because out of love. And then you start working on all your virtues. Why? Because you want to show Jesus that you love Him. So you want to look the best possible for Him. You understand? Absolutely. It's an act of the will. So you might go to Mass and feel completely dry and there's no emotions. Or you can pray at home and you don't feel nothing. And you're, you know, you're, your thought is bouncing all over the place. But because you're offering it up, you're making that act of the will, you're showing your love to Jesus. Yes? Okay. Yeah, yeah, my point to you is that the black and white part, let's talk about that. We have to be black and white when it comes to the truth. Because the truth is, at the end of the day, black and white. Jesus said, I am the truth. He didn't say, I am 90% of the truth and 5% is out there. Or I am the great truth. I am the truth. That's it. What does that mean? There's nobody else out there. It's just me. Right? Jesus. Hmm. So, that's the key. The truth is clear. Jesus, if you love somebody, you don't leave him in the dark. You don't make it ambiguous for somebody. You make it really clear. No, you're not going to do drugs. That's the end of it. Because you love the person, right? We need clear directions. He gives them to them, to us through the church. Now, the way we apply them in our lives can take many forms. And we have to be patient. Not all of us follow the same journey. Not all of us express the, the faith the same way. God loves variety within truth. So your journey is going to be different than others, right? And it's important for us to realize that and understand that we need to follow God's calling within the confines of this truth. So you go to Mass, you go to confession, you say your prayers, but then how God is going to call you, what you're going to do, is going to be yours. And absolutely, uniquely you. And non-repeatable. It will never be repeated again. Right? So yes, there are a set of things we want to do, but we don't want to do them because the rules, we just have to follow them. We're doing them out of love. Part of it is to understand why we have to do them. Like the rosary. People say the rosary, and most of the time they say what I call a telegraphic rosary. Hail Mary, for the grace of the Lord is with you. Bless you. I can't even say it the past, as fast as they, I can't. It blows my mind away. You're talking to the mother of God, the queen of the universe, the queen of heaven and earth, the one creature that has more graces and holiness in her than all saints and all angels combined for all ages. You imagine St. Gabriel the Archangel going to Our Lady and saying, you know, I can't even say it now anymore in the Greek, but hail full of grace. And he would say to her, hail full of grace, Lord is with thee. Imagine Gabriel speaking to her like this. And we're talking about an angel. But we have no problem. You know, that would scandalize and shock Protestants, by the way, if they, if they heard you say the rosary this way. They find it scandalous. Why? Most of us don't understand what the rosary is for. We don't realize, if we, if we could see with our naked eyes what happens to the demons every time we say a Hail Mary the right way. 
if we understood what kind of weapon we have in our hands when we say the rosary. If we understood that it has to be proclaimed like on a field of war. Hail Mary, full of grace. You raise your voice when you say it. You say it with, so hold, on, hold, on, hold on a second please. You say it with strength. You are affirming something. You are crushing the head of Satan. You're really going to crush the head of Satan? Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed Lord is with We don't understand what the rosary is about, right? So therefore, we have to seek the truth. As you said it, the truth will set you free. Jesus said, follow me, I'll lead you to the truth, the truth will set you free. He didn't say, find the truth, set up a committee, do some PowerPoints, figure it out, and come follow me. No, no, follow me, I will get you to the truth, and then the truth will set you free. The problem is that we follow him, and we just skirt the truth. Well, we'll leave that to others, we're not that smart, we're not going to do it. I'm just... No, we all have to follow and lead to the truth. So we learn what we're doing. And when we do that, we, we are taken by the beauty of it, by the beauty of truth. Because it is Jesus Christ. Right? So that's the key in our journey. There is no correlation. Each one of us has a special journey and a special guide to lead us somewhere. Many of the apostles were martyred. St. John was not. He's St. John the Evangelist. He lived to old age. Mind you, he had Our Lady, hint, hint, but he lived to old age and was not martyred. He didn't, he didn't die the death of a martyr. But he is St. John the Evangelist. Right? There is no correlation. The key is, Lord, how am I loving you today? Am I doing what is pleasing before your majesty? And if not, please help me do it. And whatever you ask of me, I will do. That's the key. Yes. Okay, a couple of things. One thing I want to really clear, clear up for all of you. Most saints will tell you there is no guaranteed salvation on this, in this life. Right? I like the way Father John Hamsch described going to heaven. He says, going to heaven is like climbing a city escalator that is hellbound. Have you ever tried to climb an escalator going down? Right? This is what our journey is. If you stop going up, what happens? Go down. There is no stay where you are, right? Okay. And that's a pretty accurate description, I might say. Now, you do. You show Jesus one act of life, one single act of love from all your heart. As long as you don't renounce it later, you don't separate yourself from it, right? That act of love if it is done on its own, will probably not be sufficient when compared to everything else you've done. But if you do this act of love to Our Lady, because Jesus said on the cross, this is your mother, hence he gave her, alongside with the church, the ministry of mercy. Mary on her own has no power. But Jesus on the cross willed that his mother become the channel of his mercy to us. No wonder he used the rosary for us to say, you know, he's trying to make a connection for us. See, connection, my mother, mercy, are you getting it? Right? You know, I had, sometimes you have somebody who says, I don't like to say the rosary, I'm going to say the Shabbat divine mercy. Well, okay, you haven't gotten it. Right? So she is this, 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 this uh, embodiment of mercy. Hence, when she appeals to him, she appeals to him as his mother, and he, in his fourth commandment, said, Honor your mother and your father. Glorify your mother. And he honors her. 
right? So now it's like you put your money into this uh, account and it just multiplied. It went berserk, like right? uh, 30,000% in interest. That's what happened to you. That's the power of your prayer now went through her and hence she will pull you. Yeah, she can. But you must not renounce that. So this man said this one Hail Mary was 30 years old and he never renounced it. Even though he never said any other one, she will still pull him out. Yeah? The cross is really near you, right in front of you. Look at the mirror. You're that cross. Look, if you want to grow in holiness, this must happen to you. You must become burdensome to yourself. The flesh is weak. The spirit is willing. If you're comfortable with who you are, you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, what a great guy I am. You got a long way to go. Right? You're like a Tommy standing and dancing in front of everybody with a full diaper. You just don't see the diaper. He doesn't see it either. And he doesn't smell it. He's used to the smell. Okay. Read the first seven chapters of The Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross. Don't read any further than that. Don't read the Saint of Mont Carmel. Just read those first seven chapters. And you'll understand what I'm talking about. He has a mind of an engineer. He lays it out so clearly of all the imperfections we go through when we're trying to pray. And I will show you what kind of cross we are to ourselves. And what kind of a cross we can be to others. The weather is not to our liking. We complain. We huff and puff. The food is not right. We say, how come you didn't put the right salt in it? We complain for so many things. We are so heavy on others, we don't even see it. We are a cross. Yeah? We are across to somebody else who has to carry us. We don't even see it. It's about, it's very simple. Find God in the kitchen. Find God in the computer. Find God in your room. By doing these little acts of love for others. That's how you find God. Somebody blames you of, the, the, why is the kitchen dirty? Take the hit. Don't defend yourself. Jesus, I love you. Right? Little things. Know the virtues. To be, learn the virtues. What are they? Right? Faith, hope, love, and charity. Faith, hope, love. Right? The three cardinal virtues. Then you have temperance, prudence, fortitude, and justice. The four cardinal virtues. And all the attendant ones. And ask yourself, how am I doing in these areas? And you'll find a lot of areas where you're across. Yeah? So, Lilian, um, let's take those questions one by one. Uh, no, we don't believe he was naked. He, as uh, the ancients would, would they, he would have some clothes on and it would be a, a coat, if you will, a light coat that he would have on top of him. And that's what she grabbed onto. So when he got out, he did not go out naked. That's uh, question number one. Number two, um, when we present ourselves before God, yes, we must be modestly dressed. It is an imperative. Why? Because... Well, there are many reasons. But fundamentally, um, you're presenting yourself before the majesty of God. If you're coming in immodestly dressed, you're basically saying to God that he accepts lust in his presence, which he never does. Hence, it's a way for you to say to God that I am going to define what you accept. I mean, it's, it's, there are so many things you're doing when you come here immodestly dressed. right? And let me clarify for you, immodestly dressed. All right? Anything below two fingers from your neck is immodestly dressed. 
anything that is not completely covered, all your arms are covered, and then your, whatever you're wearing is at least four inches below the knee is immodestly dressed. Anything too tight, up or down, front or back, is immodestly dressed. All right? If you want to know if you're immodestly dressed, women, ask a man. Because most of you have no clue. You don't have the eyes for it. Okay? Men do. Ask a man. Do you think this is, this is appropriate? Ask a man. All right. Now, question number three. It is not, the, the priest is not an enforcer of the law. Absolutely not. He is a minister of God who is to dispense his mercy according to all of us. We are responsible at the end of the day for our salvation, not the priest. When we stand before Jesus, Jesus is not going to say, okay, let me look who was your priest. Oh, that was a bad one. Okay, you're off the hook. <laughs> not going to happen. It's not going to happen. St. Peter tells us in his epistle that now that the Holy Spirit came, none of you needs a teacher. You do not need a teacher. The teaching is set before you. You are duty-bound to know what the church teaches. It's your duty. Okay? Hold on. This is the second thing. So therefore, it is not up to him to refuse communion to somebody. Right? Now, it may be his duty to educate, to teach, to etc., etc. That might be something he must do, right? Okay. Uh, so that would answer the question about what the... It's not up to the priest to condemn somebody right there and then. Now, if it is someone who is a known personality and who has taken a stance against Catholic teachings, then he cannot give him communion because that would cause scandal. He is, uh, the priest is always, has always the right and the authority to refuse communion to anybody. Right? He, he, he does have that authority. Now, let's take the case you, you said earlier about somebody coming in scandally dressed. If somebody comes in so badly dressed that it's causing a scandal, this person must be asked to leave the church and must be asked to go and change their clothing. Right? That has to happen. Right? Uh, so anything that causes a scandal must be reacted to right there and then. But in the case of a 13-year-old, and I saw a 13-year-old coming in here dressed the way I would say prostitutes are dressed. Right? She's a 13-year-old. Now, is this the right time moment right there to refuse her communion in front of everybody and embarrass her? She's 13 years old? I'm not so quite sure. But maybe calling her parents to a conversation or going and visiting with them and having a conversation around that might be appropriate. But if the parents are already contracepting, they've completely lost any sense of modesty anyhow. Because contraception is like a poison. It eats at your heart and eats everything in your house. It's like a monster. So, you have a, so the priest now has a much bigger issue to deal with. Now what do you do? You kick those people out of the church? or It's a, it's a really difficult pastoral um, judgment to make. Yeah. So we have to avoid extreme cases need to be dealt with. Anything in this gray area, you have to deal with it with, with the pastoral care, the care of the father. Right? Yes. This business of crying babies is, again, a pastoral care. Sometimes it's okay to get babies out. Some other times it's not, because Jesus said, let the kids come to me. And he didn't say, let the kids come to me when they're quiet. <laughs> so I understand, and he knows his, uh, he knows his uh, community. He knows what needs to be done. So I'm not saying it's, it's wrong or right. All I'm saying is we shouldn't judge a priest one way or the other when he reacts to 
babies crying in the church, whether he allows them or not. Yes, I understand. But I'm saying it's a, it's a, it's a, sometimes it's okay for the cry room. I don't like cry rooms, personally. That's my take on it. But uh, I, I'm not a priest, and I'm amenable to whatever is offered in the church. But I can understand your point, yes. It's disruptive to our concentration. However, the point of Mass is not what we get out of it. The point of Mass is what we offer. And it's probably more worthwhile for you to offer the suffering that you get from that crying baby than to enjoy the quiet. Because enjoying the quiet, you're receiving. The frustration and the anger and the upset that you're getting from the baby if you offered it up, that is much more worthwhile. Yeah? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You failed to, to silence your child. You're lacking charity. It's a lack of charity. No, no. You failed to. It means you let him cry. But if you have, let's say, a child, right, who is crying, and you take him and you calm him down, and now he's just talking very quietly, you're fine. But if you're okay with your child thinking, this is the time for him to look for Jane in the jungle, you fail to silence him. He's not Tarzan, so it's not the time to do it, right? See my point? It's just tact and charity, absolutely. Something to look into. Yeah? Yes, sir. Very good question. Is it better to stay or better to leave? All right. Here's some rule of thumbs. If you have young children, you leave. You have some who are in your care, and whatever they're going to see and learn from will stay with them. You owe it to your children to find another parish where they're going to receive what they need. If you don't have young children, then the next thing to do, in my opinion, is not to leave. Find like-minded people in your church and form, form a offensive group. Fast, come together, pray, and ask His Majesty to change things around. And then, meet the priest, try to see if he can come over for supper, try to get to know him, and maybe you might, at one point, slide his way a book, or a tape, or something, to get him to hear something. that Maybe he hasn't heard it in so long. Who knows? Right? So, it's important not to get into the, oh, it's me and him, and I'm wearing a boxing ring, and I, you know, right? But to fast and pray first that God will change his mind and his heart and open his mind and his heart to his truth, and then to give him maybe food for thought. And if after this, right, it hasn't happened, and you tried and tried and tried, and nothing seems to change, then you ask God, should I stay or should I leave? Yeah? So I think this graduating approach to trying to do what you can within your parish if you don't have children would be very beneficial. Now, that does not mean that from time to time you allow yourself some rest. Right? So there is up in, um, I'm just going to let you know, up in um, Vista, St. Uh, Sylvester, St. Margaret. You know the Irish priest. Right? who says the Latin rite mass with the beautiful Gregorian chant. Okay, so you allow yourself some rest. You go there, right? St. Anne's, right? Okay, so you know. And, but you still wage the battle to see if you can win him back. Yeah? Because if you don't, who's going to do it? Yes. Yes. Yes, You're, you are correct. As long as when you... You, you um, bless yourself with holy, with holy water. You explicitly ask God to forgive you your venial sins. Or at the elevation, likewise. If you explicitly ask Him, it's not automatic. right? This is not a car wash. 
Right? You gotta ask. You get me? All right. So then, in that case, why should you go to confession? Right? Now, here's an interesting thing. John Paul II went to confession every day. John Paul II went to confession every day. Huh. What was he doing? Well, here's the deal. Confession is called the court of mercy. On the one hand, it imparts forgiveness of sins. But more, not more, but also it imparts the graces you need to overcome sin, which you do not receive when you, you bless yourself, because this is a sacramental. Confession is a sacrament. You realize, you realize that confession is much more powerful than exorcism. People somehow have the opposite. They think exorcism is way more powerful than confession. Exorcism is a sacramental. We resort to exorcism because somebody can go to confession. Confession is the court of mercy. Jesus is coming into your soul and flooding it with, you, with his light. Put it this way. Here, you bless yourself, right? Uh, you got a taste for the chicken. You go to confession, you have the whole chicken. Yeah? Okay. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.